Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Rachel Adams. We're at the Allison in Newburgh. It's February 4th, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Thank Rachel. you so much. Uh, first question, most important question, why wine? The most important question, absolutely. Um, you know, I actually went to, I grew up here in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Oregon, in Lake Oswego, just a little bit south of Portland. And uh, I studied abroad. I had an opportunity to study abroad in college and um, went to Switzerland. And while I was there, did some inter-regional traveling and started really getting the food and wine bug and realized when I came back from this amazing adventure that I had grown up with wine country in my backyard the entire time and really found that there was so much to draw me and attract me to that. I had started college uh, just being 100% certain that I would be a history major. I loved... I loved the way that um, we, st- you know, history allows you to look back and to look at the lessons that are learned from from our legacies. But I ended up studying anthropology. I took a, an intro to anthropology class in my first semester at the University of Oregon, and I realized it was answering the why behind history. That it it talked about the the issue of culture and about psychology and about why do communities make collective and individual decisions um, and and what's the context for historical events and so I totally took a, a, a sharp turn and immediately declared my major as anthropology had a couple really incredible professors that pulled me along in that and um, as I was leaving college I worked in the nonprofit sector mostly around women's health and um, really just kind of kept I was now of age, I was able to go out in the Portland food and dining scene, to, to taste wines, to figure out where their origins were, to understand, you know, for example, if I'm studying the Jurens family, you know, production, what was happening culturally and historically in the time that those wines were starting to be made, and it was making all of these amazing connections for me. And um, I found that wine was really the alchemy of all of these other things that I loved. It was travel and science and art and community and building relationships and sustainability and farming and I just thought to myself there's something for everyone here and particularly for me there's it touches on so much that I'm interested in in my own life Um, and so I actually took a very part-time job um, at Rex Hill and A to Z in Newburgh I had a friend who worked there who hooked me up with an interview and I told myself I could afford about six months at part-time and if I wasn't full-time in the wine industry by six months then I would go back to what I was doing previously and I think it was about six months to the day that I was offered a full-time position there and I've never looked back. <laughs> so tell me about that first position and, and so you, you, you've got food and wine, you have interest and right. now you're actually in the industry so what's it like? What is the industry like and what's your, what is your job like? Hugely different than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, as an outsider in the wine industry, a lot of people expect that all we do is drink wine all day. And um, I didn't expect to drink wine all day, but I did expect to, um, I expected a leisurely pace. (laughs) 
to the industry, and that is not true. I found out very quickly that everyone in this industry works incredibly hard, um, that there's a lot of technicality, there's a lot of hard skills that are required to work in the wine industry. You have to, especially in sales, you have to be able to, um, you not only do you have to be able to have a, a personality that connects with customers, but you also have to have the analytical ability to figure out how your tasting room is doing, how your winery is doing, how which wines are selling best versus which wines are struggling, and maybe why that might be, and how do we um, how do we increase the profile of this particular skew? And um, so I learned very quickly that I needed the math, the science, the the business mm -hmm. skills that that I learned along the way in college and in my you know the early years of my career, and so that was a big surprise for me but turned out to be a welcome one. I would say the position that I had at Rexel, even though I started very part-time in the tasting room, my only responsibility was to pour and talk about wine, um, you know, and take inventory and make sure that the tasting room was clean and beautiful and welcoming. Um, you know, after I quickly rose into more full-time capacity, it was a lot more reporting. It was a lot more qualitative and quantitative analysis. Um, and I actually discovered that I loved that. And that I always didn't, I didn't necessarily think of myself as very much of a data head, um, but I found through, through training and through flexing those muscles that it was something I found fascinating mm -hmm. to be able to look at you know, a page of, of numbers that represent how those connections that we're making in the tasting room, how they're resulting in support back to the winery and to furthering the goals that we all had together. And I thought that was so interesting. Tell me about the customers, uh, getting getting to you know the, the the other side of the counter. What were the what were they like? What were they asking? What were the demands? What were yeah. the, what was it like being on that side of the counter? I mean, one of the things that I loved so much about being behind the bar through my entire Oregon wine career is just the the vary the variation in experience and understanding and passion about wine. So, you know, you would have someone who literally was 21 and who was having their very first wine tasting and you were going through those, you know, those four S's of mm -hmm. sip, smell, savor. I can't even remember them all. <laughs> There's only four of them. What is it? It's smell, it's sight. Sight, sight smell, sip, savor. There it is. And, or swirl is in there somewhere. Oh boy. we're. It's okay. It's, it's been a long time since I've done this. It's good thing you're not behind the tasting room it's counter. Great thing thing I'm no longer behind the tasting room counter. Um, so anyhow, you're taking people through those, mm -hmm. you know, elementary rules of wine tasting, all the way up to someone who's, you know, has a thousand bottle cellar and is particularly interested in, you know, Premier Grand Cru Burgundy and is here in Oregon to taste and, and understand, you know, the, the style of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that we're doing here. Um, so the variety of conversations that I was able to have with folks where I was really teaching some people for the very first time and then just totally geeking out with someone who this is their life, just the way that it's our lives, uh, was really fun and exciting. I would say, you know, most people when they were um, the kinds of questions that we would receive. They wanted to know how the wine was grown. They wanted to know how the wine was made. They wanted to know about the people behind the wines. So I think that's something that, you know, as a marketer um, of wine, we so frequently focus on the vineyards that these wines come from, the way that they're made, the way they're bottled, all of these really technical things. And so often people are looking for the story. They want to know who grew these grapes and why? And why did they make these decisions? And what called them to do this in their lives? And so I 
I most enjoyed getting to tell the story of the people that I worked with and for in those years because I think um, that personalization sometimes gets lost in this competitive uh, environment of who makes, you know, who makes the um, sort of the preeminent wines in the Willamette mm -hmm. Valley or the preeminent wines in the world mm -hmm. and, and what technical and scientific decisions did they make to make that wine so great. And I've always been someone that's a little bit more interested in the human side of this industry and um, what calls people to, to do it. Absolutely. So after Rex Hill, what's, what's your next step in the... So after Rex Hill, my wife um, got into graduate school at Oregon State University and so we were going to have to move to Corvallis. And I knew that I could not do the commute between Corvallis and Newburgh every day. And so I started investigating, how can I stay in this industry and get myself a little closer down to the southern part of the Limit Valley? And that's when I discovered the Eagle Amity Hills, which is my, really feel like where my heart and soul in this industry still lives to this day. Um, I met the family at Bethel Heights Vineyard and had heard such incredible things about the kindness of their family, but also just the legendary wines that they were making and the history that was tied to that vineyard and to that family. And I literally walked in the door with my resume and said, I want to figure out how to work for you. Here's what I've just done. Here's what I think I can offer. And it was at that point that I figured out that the Bethel Heights family, the Castiles, were normally accustomed to hiring either family members, neighbors, previous babysitters, uh, folks that lived down in that part of the valley. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a hugely common occurrence for the Castiles to hire outside of their immediate family and community. And so it was a huge deal when they offered me a position as hospitality manager there. Um, I really had the room to grow in that position that I was craving um, coming off of my great experience at Rex Hill and A to Z. Rex Hill and A to Z is an incredible winery that is so well known around the world, but they also have quite a few people working for them. And so you find that your job, you know, your job can be pretty specific there. Whereas at Bethel Heights, I, I walked into a team of maybe four or five full-timers and it was required that we all mm -hmm. do everything. And so not only was I in the tasting room, making new connections, continuing to support their wine club structure, but I also went on sales trips around the country and represented the brand in a lot of different regions around the United States, learned what the wholesale side of the market mm -hmm. looks like, learned how to speak about wines and talk about wines to people who aren't direct-to-consumer customers, who are much more interested in what price can you give me on this bottle? and. Um, not to say that they, they aren't interested in, in the story behind it as well, but I found that it took a different type of conversation to get those deals to be made. Um, and so I really felt like Bethel Heights is where I, where I really stretched my wings and grew. Um, I was there about two years when Lexi, my wife, started uh, finish wrapping up her, her graduate program. Mimi Castile, who has become such a friend and has been a total mentor for me through my career. I'm so lucky to say that I have her in my corner. Um, she came to me and said that Domaine Duran had actually been, had approached her and had said, we're looking for somebody to fill a management position that's brand new, that we've just created, and do you know anybody? And Mimi actually asked me for my permission to throw my name in the ring, which was, talk about mentorship. I mean, knowing that 
what she did there meant that I was going to stop contributing to Bethel Heights and that she was giving me her endorsement to, to move on to something larger. Um, I was super grateful for that opportunity and, and said, yes, please, I would I'm ready for the challenge and ended up getting that position um, as the hospitality and events manager at, um, at DDO. And within the first two months of me being there, they took me to France, which was incredible. And I got to stay in the Duran family home there and taste in the caves. And we opened half bottles of every different village that, uh, that the Durans made a half bottle from um, as we rode throughout the, on bikes throughout those actual vineyards. It was a life-changing experience. And I was so grateful to them for that. Um, and I was there for about a year and then got another opportunity to go to Lingua Franca and work for Larry Stone. I was just like, it was kind of a when it rains it pours sort of time in my career. I still look back on that and am so overwhelmed and grateful that I had, you know, that I had two really incredible opportunities mm -hmm. back to back. Um, and so I got to go back down to the Eola Amity Hills where I had been missing the Eola Amity. I just, there's something so special about it. There's so... There's something that just lights me on fire about the Eolamity Hills. The, the aspect, the wind that comes from the Oregon Coastal Range, those really high tension, high acidity wines, um, and also just the fact that so many of the people making wine down there have been doing so for so long, so passionately, so quietly, so humbly, and um, that they've been given this incredible spotlight in the last couple years that is so well-deserved. Um, getting to work with people like Erica and Ken at Walter Scott and um, the Flossicks at St. Innocent and being back in the same neighborhood with the Castiles, who I missed so much. <laughs> and also, of course, getting to work for Larry and getting to craft his Oregon wine story and to help build that direct sales program from nothing was just something I couldn't, I couldn't turn down. Um, and so then I went there for about a year and a half and then discovered it was time to go self-employed. <laughs> I had a dream that was building the whole time, and and that dream was to build build something, an event, an organization, a coalition, something in the Oregon wine industry that would talk about diversity and that would talk about inclusion and would talk about the future of this industry, not just in Oregon but around the world. And um, you know, I'd had some really incredible opportunities to work for really large wineries and really small wineries. And I felt like, I felt like even on, on any of those scales, I felt like we were missing, um, we were missing some really crucial content and discussions that I felt like needed to happen on an industry-wide level um, that could just take us all to that next benchmark of we care so much about the vineyards that we farm and the wines that we make and the sustainability practices that we you know applaud and celebrate among ourselves and I felt like it made perfect sense that we should also apply that same passion and interest and dedication to how does it feel to work in the wine industry are these positions sustainable are these careers sustainable are we healthy are we happy are we encouraging each other are we opening our doors to new voices and giving not just diversifying the industry but providing inclusion um and i just had this burning 
all of these burning questions inside of me and I knew that I needed to go out on my own to really start getting answers to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so Lingua Franca set me off with, you know, a lot of support and excitement for what was coming next in my career and um, I took a giant leap <laughs> and quit my job and gave up my salary and my benefits and um, and said I have something to build mm -hmm. and of course my wife really held it down <laughs> for a good six months to a year while I figured out what that was gonna look like I'm curious. Uh, you have this this this, this passion, this, this desire. Mm -hmm. Is there are there events that have shaped this, or is it just mm -hmm. kind of a growing need that you've noticed? Is there, are there things that happen that you're like benchmark moments on that? On that yes, that? totally, absolutely. Um, I you know being being a gay woman in this industry, in, diversity and inclusion is at the front of my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I even bring you know I bring a ton of privilege to the space as a as a white cisgender woman in this community and so you know our identities are always intersecting and the roots of my career right after college were solidly in women's health and advocacy for for women's rights mm -hmm. and then I had this eight-year career in wine and it felt like I, it was an opportunity to merge mm -hmm. those two experiences into something new that hadn't been done here in Oregon yet before um, but there were a couple, you know, th I, I found myself sitting in rooms around, <clears throat> whether it was a volunteer organization or a board or um, an industry-wide symposium or an event in another industry, and I found myself looking, find, seeing opportunities for inclusion that were missed. Mm -hmm and thinking, okay, so if this were, if this content were offered in another language, if this content was offered with, in sign language, if these restrooms were gender neutral, if, um, you know, if more of the speakers on stage were people of color, if I just, I just started seeing these opportunities, these gaps in the content that we were providing, and I started wondering to myself, you know, people in Oregon talk a lot about the lack of diversity that's here, racial diversity that's here, and that's not wrong. Oregon has a pretty heartbreaking history when it comes to um, racism and oppression, and so it's not shocking to me that people of color don't want to live here based on that history. Um, but I also, I also find in the wine industry that there's a lot of excuses made for why people of color aren't being put to the forefront and aren't being celebrated um, as equally as people who have traditionally been celebrated in this industry. And I was curious if there was an opportunity um, to show how maybe we could do this differently. And, and so Assemblage was born. Um, Assemblage is started as an annual symposium. It was just going to be an event that I was going to throw along with a lot of other women in the community that was going to be focused on women and diverse communities in wine. Um, it ended up becoming a statewide nonprofit organization of which now I am the executive director. I still don't like 
I, I'm like, what? What is life? <laughs> um, it sounds very fancy. We're still all doing it on a volunteer basis. Um, at some point, it would be great if this could be my primary job. But for now, it's a passion project. But we are officially a statewide nonprofit organization, which feels really great and means that we can partner with so many other organizations. We can gain. Um, it just make it's, it greases the wheels a little bit for um, bringing a lot of people together for the sake of empowerment and education, and um, you know, focusing on diversity and inclusion in a much more formal way than just an annual event might be able to. Um, so we're we're speaking at sort of the beginning of all of this, but uh, it feels it feels like we're really onto something. Yeah. You've talked about a couple times about diversity versus inclusion. Mm -hmm. So tell me what, in your mind, the difference, what is the difference between diversity and yeah. inclusion? Yeah. So to me, I mean, diversity is, diversity has more to do with just demographically, you know, making sure that you have a diversity of voices, a diversity of backgrounds, diversity of ages, diversity of races, socioeconomic status. Inclusion is about active things that you can do to then support those folks when they come into your organization. And so we had a great, um, we had a great speaker, Jenna Reed from the Oregon Employers Association, um, speak at the first Austin Blush Symposium, which just happened here in, in wine country in January. And she talked about how it's great if you go out and you hire, you know, folks of differing backgrounds than yourself. But then if you leave the structures of your organization exactly the same and do nothing to change them, and then you bring in a diverse group of people and make it that much more difficult for those people to access resources, to access education, to access empowerment, um, you've basically just stood still. You haven't you haven't actually changed anything for those people. And in fact, you might have welcomed them into a place that's an additional burden because they've been sourced for the, the value that they'll bring to the company or to the organization but haven't been provided for so that they feel safe and comfortable and are empowered within the space. So that's kind of a concrete way of think for me thinking about diversity versus inclusion. Um, and I think the wine industry still has challenges to diversity. And so the, the point here now is, okay, let's try let's try harder to diversify our, our businesses. And then once we've done that, how do we include them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there's a two part, mm -hmm. there's a two part lesson to be learned there. So you have this, you, you, you've, stopped, you've, 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 you've stopped your day job, you, yep. you've, you've got this dream. Uh, at what point does the idea for Austin Blige become what you wanted? Do you talk about an event mm. or an organization? What does it become concrete? Did you model it off of something? Did you have this idea mm. for what it would be? You know, I went to a conference in, um, in Southern California last year called Girl Boss. And it was a huge awakening for me about how an organization a company, an event could create so much community and so much um, learning and opportunity for women specifically. And that was a huge benchmark moment for me. Um, Girlboss is a little more oriented towards women entrepreneurs, so it was perfect for me at the time because I had just mm -hmm. left my job, I had planned to start this new mm -hmm. thing, whatever it was gonna be, and so I went, you know, it's not a cheap conference to go to, and I spent, you know, some of my some of my last dollars on going to have this enrichment opportunity, and I it was some of the best money I've ever spent. Mm -hmm. I really I met so many women that were doing such incredible, powerful, 
ingenious things in their community. I met one woman who um, who was working on a delivery box to, to you know, these like mm -hmm. delivery boxes. Some people do food, some people do clothes, pet supplies. She had one that was all centered around women's health and particularly menstruation mm -hmm. and um, was even conceptualizing boxes for like queer parents who maybe didn't experience menstruation and have a daughter mm -hmm. who needs help. And I mean, just meeting these women who were really thinking outside the box of, I have an idea, I have a unique perspective, I have something that I can contribute to the world in a unique way and I'm gonna go for it, was I came back so fired up and so excited mm -hmm. to, to not just continue um, this idea that, that I felt resonated for me, but to see if it resonated for more people in the community, and it turned out it very much did. Mm -hmm. um, I immediately had a conversation with a couple of my women friends in the wine industry on the Sunday of IPNC weekend, actually. We're all winding down from a busy <laughs> IPNC weekend, having a couple glasses of wine, and we just started talking about the challenges that we face sometimes in the Oregon wine business. Mm -hmm. And some were winemakers, some were on the sales side of things, and, um, you know, I just started asking what, what's great about your job? What sucks about it? And um, some of the things that they mentioned that sucked about it were very gender specific. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I wasn't alone in thinking that, that those questions that I wanted answers to mm -hmm. um, were on the minds of others. Yeah. What were the biggest issues as you from that from that conversation mm -hmm. and from the ones you before the first symposium mm -hmm. as you were building your agenda? What were yeah. the biggest issues you were you were hearing? Definitely um, promotion, up, you know, upward mobility mm -hmm. in their careers, um, getting you know formal professional feedback that was very gender based about emotionality about. Um, conflicts that they had as parents, as, as moms, mm -hmm. and f figuring out work-life balance, like breastfeeding, you know, in a, in a bathroom, like in between 200 tasters on a Saturday with no like close running water or refrigerator or things to make that sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, definitely heard about issues of homophobia, mm -hmm. um, racism, and feeling like these spaces were difficult to access for people who didn't represent a traditional mold mm -hmm. in the industry. Mm -hmm. And 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 really sort of heartbreakingly, like just a shame about wondering if us as we are, she as she is, me as I am, if this industry is for us. And um, and wondering if who we are inherently makes our jobs more challenging and makes it harder for our wineries than it would be if if we were um, more like what's come before. Mm -hmm. And that's really what bothered me. Mm -hmm. And I and and I thought um, to me as a as a consumer of wine, as someone who travels the world going to wine regions, if I go to a tasting room and there's someone who talks about their wife or husband as a queer person behind the bar, I feel so much more comfortable and excited to introduce my wife and to talk about our, our seller. And mm -hmm. it opens it opens conversations that sometimes feel a little hush-hush 
in the luxury wine space, in the, in the luxury sales space. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that way when I go into a jewelry store. I, I mean, I remember I was, I was buying the engagement ring that I was going to give to my wife, um, you know, and I felt so nervous in this, like, place full of diamonds and rubies and people are like is this for a friend is this for a are you oh are you giving yourself a present you know and and I was like wow you know I I was em I, I was embarrassed mm -hmm. to say no I'm here shopping for an engagement ring for my for my partner for my wife and and now I wouldn't be I'm much more self-realized and self-actualized and you know I I was young, very young, and you know, still struggling with my own identity and what that means and um, how my life will be different as a result of it. I am so good with all of that now, <laughs> but at the time it was really intimidating. <laughs> and I just, when I think back on the reasons why I got into wine, because travel and people and science and art and the, you know, the alchemy of all these incredible things, those are things that across the spectrum people are interested in and are willing and want to talk about mm -hmm. and um, it just broke my heart to hear that wine has been a space that has been stodgy difficult to break into um, intimidating and I just know how many wonderful people work in this industry and how passionate they are about mm -hmm. making it for everyone and I was like we need to do something about mm -hmm. this because if this is the perception of who we are, but it's not who we actually are, like there's a dissonance there that needs to be talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and so that night over that, those couple glasses of wine, having those conversations, I just asked the group, I was like, what would it look like if we did something about this? Like what, um, would, it be, what would it be? Would it be an event? Would it be a, an organization? Would it be a task force? Would it be, you know, should we go through the Lima Valley Wineries Association? Should we go through the Oregon Wine Board? Should we? And it was decided that it needed to be something autonomous, mm -hmm. that it needed to be something new, that we needed to put new people from the industry at the forefront and um, scour, you know, a larger cross-section of wine professionals to see who we could get to speak to these issues that maybe we haven't heard from before and just see what happens. And so we decided that night that it would be an event. Um, and a couple of text messages and things later, I had left my job. And uh, yeah, I remember I got a text from a colleague and she was like, hey, I've really been thinking about this women in wine thing, this diversity in wine thing that we were talking about. I think we should really do something about it. And I wrote back, I just left my job. <laughs> And she was like, what? And I said, I know, I know, but I, t I just agree so much that we need to do something about it. And I'm fortunate enough that I can leave my job right now mm -hmm. and it's gonna be tough, but I just quit. And she was like, oh my gosh, okay, what are we gonna do? And, um, you know, pretty soon we had six women working on it. Then we had 10, then we had 20, then we had 30. Um, and then it all kicked off just a few weeks ago with this with the symposium. We had close to 300 people there. It was just incredible. And you outgrew your original space, so you had to we kind did. of do some rethinking on the fly. We did. Tell me about the logistics. Tell me about getting speakers and, and marketing, branding, yeah. naming, all all the things you had to do to yeah. make this make this happen. Right. Okay. This is reminding me of that like um, how it's made podcast, <laughs> which is one of my very favorites because it's I'm like, how did you do that? And when did you decide let's, to do this? Let's and, talk about how the sausage you got made. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So the first. Um, um, the first process for me was gathering the community together, figuring out 
who echoed these values, who wanted to see something like this happen, where my support was going to be, and who was willing to like roll up their sleeves and do some stuff about mm -hmm. it because I knew I couldn't do it by myself. Um, so I started gathering what we call our steering committee, which are women who um, really, really most of us shook out to have about 10 years experience in the wine industry, although we had some folks that were brand new. We had an amazing Linfield intern, Lily Hanridge, join, join the team, who's behind the camera right now, if you can't see. <laughs> um, so we had, a, we had a really nice scope of perspectives, but we did end up finding folks that were kind of in that millennial age range, basically just because I pulled the people that were closest to me and said, I know that this is important to you, let's do something about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I didn't think very strategically about like who was gonna be a part of this. I was just like, you're passionate about this, come on down. You're passionate about this, let's do it. And pretty soon we had a steering, a, a really nice, well-rounded steering committee. I became pretty aware that we also needed some intergenerational discussions and advice and perspective. And so I started building what we call the advisory board, which were women that had 20 plus years experience in the industry, many of whom were part of some of those pioneering families. Um, but I also wanted a nice balance of women who hadn't inherited a business, who had really chose wine and had, and had charted away through their through their experience in the industry um, without being a legacy and so we ended up with over 10 women some of my heroes in this industry i mean we had eugenia keegan and mimi castile and brie stock from the oregon wine board um, kate norris from division winemaking company who else am i forgetting stacy gibson from park avenue wine so she kind of brought the retail wholesale perspective um, Louisa Ponzi, Wynn Peterson Nedry, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna forget, Gretchen Bach from, from Dobbs. I mean, uh, just like a, just an incredible powerhouse of, of women who, um, Kitchen McGuire from Visit Menville, who I think is one of the, like, the best marketing brains in our industry. Um, it was, it was like just goosebumps on the daily, getting these emails of, yes, sign me up, how do I help? Um, I sent a really detailed list of values that we wanted to share in order to be able to be a part of that advisory board. It was things like, I understand um, that, I understand the difference between institutional power and individual powerlessness um, and want to seek to change some of those power dynamics. I mean, we really like got pretty specific about like, if you're gonna jump on this boat, these are the things we say we agree should happen or need mm -hmm. to happen in the industry. And um, so that body was formed and their incredible effort and willingness to connect us with people that they know, spon potential sponsors, potential speakers, was just key um, in this process. And I'm just so grateful to, so it kind of shook out that like the steering committee became sort of the, the teeth, the folks that, you know, volunteered their time, came to monthly, then bi-monthly, then weekly meetings leading up to the, the first symposium. Um, and we're really doing the day-to-day -day lifting. And the advisory board was lovely in that they met with us periodically along the way just to sort of give us that like 30,000 foot perspective and to say, love this, think there's, think, feel like there's a hole here. Who's speaking to this? How do we, you know, 
And so um, I was well advised mm -hmm. throughout the, the course of this. And at that point, I had already come up with the name. I knew I wanted a winemaking term that, um, it, it's funny that assemblage turned out, some people call it assemble, you know, assemblage symposium. Some people call it assemblage. It actually works great both ways. You know, assemblage is about a multitude, a gathering, um, coming together. Assemblage is a French winemaking term about bringing together already finished wines, which I love, mm -hmm. and creating an even better blend, which I think is such a fitting, mm -hmm. uh, a fitting expression for what we're doing, is that you're not imperfect, you're not broken, you're not a part of a whole, you are amazing in and of yourself, and let's come together and create something even more broad and powerful. Um, and you know this event isn't going to complete you <laughs> you are complete uh that was that was sort of where it came from and um yeah so i had already done that portion everyone was signing on to a idea that was mm -hmm. pretty well formed mm -hmm. but the how we were going to get there was like <laughs> so day by day so day by day just like do the next right thing you know was kind of like my my goal the whole time is if I thought about the enormity of what we were trying to do, I would just get so overwhelmed mm -hmm. and I'd be like, okay, just, just answer your emails today. <laughs> like, is that all you can do? Great. Just answer your emails. Tomorrow, call a potential sponsor. Great. You know, mm -hmm. and just trust the next right thing. Mm -hmm. And somehow it, it culminated in a conference for 300 people and it blew even my own expectations largely in part because of the amazing people who signed on so early and who are so good at what they do let's talk about those expectations i'm curious uh your goals when you started are, are pretty fairly clear but i'm mm -hmm. curious what the organization's goals were both large and small as mm -hmm. you're going into the first conference yeah um we knew that inherently because our event was about diversity and inclusion that we needed to, um, how do I put this? We needed to make sure that the event not only met expectations of the content that we were marketing on, but we also knew that in some ways we had it a little bit harder in terms of we really needed to impress people with the quality of the event mm -hmm. because we weren't going to have what I believe are some of the most important conversations yet to happen in the Oregon wine industry and do it in a way that felt like an afterthought. And so we knew that the legitimacy of the event needed to be there. And, um, and so we gave ourselves a pretty high fundraising goal. We applied for grants, we looked for sponsorships, we grassroots fundraised a ton based on we actually started a crowdfunding campaign on a platform called i fund women um very much like kickstarter or gofundme but the difference with i fund women is that they support women oriented businesses and that you get every dollar that you raise on that platform instead of you have to meet mm -hmm. your goal in order to get that cash out and they paid us out every two weeks which was like such a windfall for a group of people who had no money and who literally started with just an idea and no funding. It's not like we had an angel investor that was like, here, here's 50 grand, go, go live your dream, you know? Mm -hmm. 
and um, we did winemaker dinners with local women in the community who very graciously donated their product for us and um, we hosted a, a block party in downtown McMinnville last July and we charged for it was like a couple bucks for every glass of wine that you wanted but then there was a winemaker dunk tank where you could dunk a winemaker and it was five bucks to like try you know we basically set up a carnival and it all benefited benefited awesome bars so just thinking outside the box mm -hmm. of ways to engage the community around these conversations and spread education while also having a great time and raising money for a good cause um, so that was you know the money portion is a lot of what I spent time on frankly mm -hmm. And my team really planned the logistics of how this was gonna go, all of the little like elements that needed to happen to come together. And it was a lot of logistics, mm -hmm. a lot. Especially once you broke into separate locations. Right, right, yeah, we decided, so we outgrew our original location, which was gonna be Linfield College. Um, we knew we needed, ticket sales were strong, and we didn't want to limit the number of people who could come and access this information. And so we realized that we had this amazing opportunity to utilize event spaces in McMinnville that were owned by women. And I do wanna say just a foundational, a foundational thing about why we chose to, to sp specifically speak to women in the community. Um, what we say is that this event and this organization is for women in diverse communities and wine. Um, I, from my nonprofit work, constantly was confronted with studies that spoke about when you're interested in making wide-scale change across the board in a community, whether it's in the developing world or in the developed world, if you start with women and girls, more people benefit faster. And it is just, it's just documented. I mean, Melinda Gates has done a ton of amazing research on this about, you know, if you wanna know how a community is doing, look at, look at the state of the lives of women and girls in that community. And that is a, usually a really accurate predictor of the, the health of that community, the upward mobility potential in that community. Is that community thriving or not? Look at women and girls. And so um, women tend to have the, the instinct to bring others along with them. Mm -hmm. they, they share the wealth that they typically gain. And that's why that, um, that's why that model tends to work. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at large scale social change. And so informed very much by what the Gates Foundation has done and what a lot of those researchers have done, um, we decided to target you know, women in diverse communities in the wine industry thinking that we might have a chance of changing things faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so people ask often, about I'm like so off. I have no idea what question you asked me. We're talking about goals, but we're doing we're doing great. Cool. Goals and logistics. Yes. Just you're doing great. Okay, perfect. Um, goals for the symposium. We definitely knew that we needed a legitimate event. That we needed to honor the topics in a very deep and real and actionable way. We weren't just going to say let's talk about diversity and then have everyone get together and be like. Who has a who has you know people of color on your team? Raise your hand and have that be like the extent of it. Mm -hmm. We needed to really dig beneath the surface and find speakers that were brave enough to really bear their souls in a lot of ways and talk about you know why we love what we do, just like we did in that living room in McMinnville. Why do you love what you do and what sucks about it? And get some really honest answers from those people. And I think we I think we especially that piece 
um, I think we really achieved that. I was so proud of how gracefully and elegantly and bravely um, our community came together to have those conversations and to be really honest about the answer. I, I mean, Rich, I don't even know if people would come. I was like, that I might be the only, we might be the only people that want to talk about this. People might be too afraid to talk about this. People might be really turned off by the idea of getting together and talking about some of the bad things that have happened to them in the wine industry. And it's, you know, um, is this bad for certain brands? Will companies not support their employees going because they think that we'll turn them into you know, activists that'll mm -hmm. come back to the winery and say, I need better pay and I need all these things. And I was, you know, there were a, there was a lot of, before that ticket link went live, there was a lot of like, is this gonna be, are we gonna get zero response? You know, are people gonna be like, cool marketing, uh, definitely not ready to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so um, just the, there were a lot of points in this process where it was a lot about faith and you know jumping into a void that I had no idea who or what would be there to catch us and um, I'm so encouraged that we had almost 300 people show up and say I'm super ready to have these conversations mm -hmm. and I was like great great thank God <laughs> because we need them yeah so tell me about the, about the conversations that have been about the speakers and, mm -hmm. and the feedback you've gotten from mm -hmm. the first event. Obviously, it's a couple couple weeks ago now, so you've had a little bit of time. Uh, tell me about how it went uh, on the ground and, and what you've heard since. Yeah. So it went incredibly. We, we've touched a little bit on the venue change. Mm -hmm. So once we decided that we were going to move venues, we rapidly needed to look in a pretty small rural community for a place that could host 300 people. Um, and be able to do lunch and breakout sessions and have some private spaces, have some public spaces. And the, the we had to get pretty creative. Mm -hmm. um, we really wanted, if we were gonna support a local business and gonna have our conference there, we would love for it to be owned by a woman. We're really lucky that most event spaces in McMinnville are owned by women. <laughs> so it worked out great. Um, we ended up settling on kind of bringing together like a fabric of event venues in the community. So we did Mac Market, who was brand new on the scene in McMinnville, owned by uh, a woman of color who comes from the Seattle area. She just opened and was, you know, we really wanted to profile that business. Plus the space was just so gorgeous and perfect for the kind of a vibe that we wanted to go for, which was non-traditional, you know, very, um, sort of cutting edge and a place where we wanted to get people out of their typical environment mm -hmm. because we felt like more unique mm -hmm. and deep conversations might be able to happen there. We also leaned on the good folks at Elizabeth Chambers Cellar for their gorgeous space. Um, Abbey Road Farm completely donated their entire venue for us to have lunch for 300 people two days in a row, which was just that's, that was really a game changer. We almost felt like we couldn't pull it off in McMinnville until Abbey Road came in and said, we'll be your lunch location, don't worry about paying us. Um, there, are, there, are, there are hundreds of people I could mention that gave things for free to make this happen. 
um, just out of the goodness of their heart and their belief in these values. And then um, our last location was a brand new space in McMinnville called The Honeycomb, mm -hmm. which is was one of the very first churches in the McMinnville community uh, at the end of the 1800s. And it's now been converted into a non-denominational event space, but that historical spot was, was really cool. Um, so we had you know, the full programming, the, the main stage was at Mac Market, breakfast was there every day. And then we actually put people on school buses and um, and carted them from location to location. We actually ended up sort of adopting this like go back to school kind of style. Mm -hmm. um, so we called each venue a classroom and we put people on real school buses, very, very inspired by Oregon Pinot Camp and their kind of camper like experience. Because um, we find when you give it a theme, people are usually more willing to, you know, get out of their comfort zone and be like, well, it's, it's a theme, so an old school bus is just fine. That's great. <laughs> um, so you can imagine a lot of points at which everything could have fallen apart during, during those two days. You know, we didn't have a single bus get lost. We didn't have a single person get left behind. We didn't have a bus break down. I mean, the number of things that were actually out of our control, that we did everything we could to put everything in place to make it happen, there were a lot of points where things could have just mm -hmm. fallen apart. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't. It was miraculous. <laughs> that, was, that was my first thought when I saw that. I was like, oh, that's a lot of, that's yep. a lot of logistics. Move 300 people <laughs> in 10 minutes. Uh, you know, from from a seated position onto the correct bus, and then 20 miles down the road, and we didn't have a single snafu. Like, I'm not expecting, you know, I'm not expecting that level of perfection in future <laughs> years. I'm prepared. Um, we also had a threat of snow for the two days. That you know, the two days that had a forecast for potential snow were the two days of assemblage. And we had lots of people reaching out and saying, what do I do if I get stuck or I can't come? Or So we had a lot of you know, thinking to do on the back end of like, how do, we make, how do we get out ahead of this? How do we, what do we do if people ask for refunds? What do we, you know? Um, so you, you're probably hearing a lot of experimentation <laughs> went into this. It was our first time. Mm -hmm. And um, we're all very relieved that we'll never have to do the first year of Assemblage <laughs> ever again, because there's now at least a little bit more of a roadmap. Okay that I'm very grateful for. <laughs> so what are your next steps now? Where, where, what, what, now that you've gotten the first year and you've mm -hmm. gotten this positive experience, mm -hmm. where does it go now? The result has been overwhelming. The response has been mind-blowing to me. Um, Instagram was just lighting up about this. The amount of noise that this event made, I feel like, is one of the things that I didn't expect. Um, we had 2,000 page views on our on our Instagram over the course of those two days. We jumped 600 followers. Like it was um, it was pretty incredible. We had we were able to fully fund every single person that asked for a scholarship to the event, which was amazing. Very much in large part to donors who specifically gave us money for scholarships. Um, so we had 15 women come from across the country and I was getting emails from people in Amsterdam and and saying, I want to do an event like this in my community and have you struggled with this problem? What have you, what's your answer to this? I like, I, I, I don't, 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 I don't,
don't know how to. It's the downside of being I, a trailblazer. It, like words fail, you know. And um, the other thing that happened is that an incredible number of women started reaching out to me and saying, and to speakers, and to saying. I felt like this industry was not for me and now I don't anymore. Yeah. Or I've met some incredible women over the last 48 hours and they're already changing my life. Yeah. Um, I met my future mentor here. I um, decided I'm gonna leave my job. Like that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I realized that I can't continue working at this particular place and you helped me get clarity on that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm gonna ask if I can go part-time. I'm gonna advocate for myself and say I need a 401k. and. Um, you know, so the, the action that was, that was happening in real time was really inspiring. Uh, I had one person come up to me and say, I just went back to my winery for a quick lunch break. My boss asked me how Awesome Blage was going and I said, we're not doing enough. We're not working hard enough. We're not reaching enough people. We are not nearly diverse and inclusive. And got an email later that afternoon that said, here's 10 grand, make it happen. Um, wow. What? <laughs> and um, it's pretty, I had, a, I had an email from somebody on the East Coast who said, uh, would love to partner with you on next year, da, 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 da. I assume this event is in New York City, right? <laughs> like, Where else could it possibly be? I was be? like, not yet. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a long school bus trip, though. Yeah, yeah, school buses would, yeah, that part of the, the logistics would have to change. Um, you know, so the fact that we created something that from the outside world, you know, really was... Um, driving the conversation nationally mm -hmm. was so spine-tingling. Mm -hmm. um, Elaine Brown was one of our speakers. She's an incredible journalist, mm -hmm. native Alaskan, um, just a powerhouse. And she speaks of these things all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not the only Women in Wine event nationally, mm -hmm. and I'm very aware of that. And there are some that have been at it a lot longer than, than us and who have much wider, wider reach than we do. Um, but I felt like it was important to do something for Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elaine got up at one of the dinners leading up and said, you know, I speak at these things a lot. And she was like, this is the most unique and special and brave program I've seen. And that really was like a big mm -hmm. moment for me. Mm -hmm. She's um, a total mentor and idol uh, of mine. And so to see her compliment it so deeply and to say like something special is really happening here it was like a big moment for me um as far as what's next for awesome Baj, we uh we have decided yes this will be an annual symposium um we are now a nonprofit, and so i'm figuring out how to run a board of directors and uh like do taxes for a nonprofit, <laughs> and like just totally honestly like nuts and bolts that's kind of where my head is at the mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. um but we hope to do much more than just an annual symposium mm -hmm. so in addition to that event that we will do every year uh we will do periodic events throughout the year that focus on a specific facet of putting these values into practice. So the first one that we have planned for the first quarter of 2020 is a mentor-mentee speed dating session. 
Um, we asked at the symposium for people to reach out to us if they were interested in finding a mentor or if they were interested in being a mentor. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, close to 50 responses, which is great. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to create an event where you literally speed date and you decide, you sort of tell us what your top five mentors, what your top five mentees are, and then we do the matching for you. Incredible. And we say, Here's your mentor, here's your mentee for the next year. And then we provide consistent support mm -hmm. and opportunities for those duos to meet, to collaborate from each other, with each other, and um, and then to check in on how that, I would love actually to, if there's like a, a powerful power couple that arrives from this, if they could speak to their experience next year of what their year of mentor mm -hmm. or mentee mm -hmm. was like, I think that'd be incredible. Um, so we have that planned. We also would love to be, we're not positioning ourselves, the, the event planners, the organizers, we're not positioning ourselves as experts on diversity and inclusion. But what I think we can do, a service we can provide is to connect interested businesses, interested wineries with those experts mm -hmm. and be sort of a convener mm -hmm. of who has the most current, the most, you know, the, the most um, progressive, the most, important content who's speaking to that right now and how do we get you connected with them if you need a training or you want you know some advice or some consulting one of my big things too is making sure those people get paid mm -hmm. for the work that they're doing and that they don't um, give away all of their advice and their experiences and their time for free mm -hmm. we want to make sure that you know, a lot of the speakers that we put up on the stage, Siobhan Ball and Elaine Brown and Julia Coney and, you know, these women of color who have done a lot of free work in their lives uh, get paid for their experiences and their time and, and their, you know, their effort. Um, <clears throat> I also feel like from working for big wineries and working for small wineries, I know that across the board, the wine industry is is has a pretty high barrier of entry when it comes to how to finance yourself as a winery. You have a lot of overhead, you have a lot of physical you know, supplies and things to take care of and to maintain. Um, things like HR are pretty rare in for individual family-owned wineries. It, I don't think it's because people don't want it. I think it's because they literally can't afford it. And same with benefits and same with you know 401k and being able to, these, these are the things that make a career in wine sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so if we as an organization can provide some of that training, some of that access to resources that I believe in my heart of hearts, wineries want to provide, but sometimes have a hard time doing so financially. Mm -hmm. If we as an outside organization can go find our own funding and then provide some of that content for the wine industry so that the burden isn't always on these small businesses mm -hmm. to be providing, 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 um, that would make me really happy because I think small business owners need help doing that. And, um, and I think we are uniquely positioned to be able to sponsor a speaker to come into the Valley to provide, you know, an HR 101 something or a debrief on Oregon labor law changes in 2020 or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I hope some people will say, I want my entire tasting room staff to be briefed on what happens if they're in a situation where they are being sexually harassed or mm -hmm. assaulted, mm -hmm. either by a team member or by a boss or by a customer. Um, I want to preemptively have a training. I just hired 10 new, 10 new part-timers for the summer, and I want to do a training on sexual harassment in the wine industry. Who should I go to? Mm -hmm. I would love for those people to come to us and ask us those questions so that we can give them someone that we know is going to do an incredible mm -hmm. job. 
Um, because so often in this industry, I feel like we are reactive, not proactive, when it comes to making sure that people on the job have everything that they need, not just not just the outfit, the right shoes, the you know the knowledge about the wine, mm -hmm. the your OLCC permit for pouring, but everything mm -hmm. they need to be successful at what they do, mm -hmm. which is also about knowing who has your back in what scenario and how to get out ahead of it rather than waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And then going back retroactively and saying, mm, yeah, we probably should have had this policy and had this oversight and mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> You're talking about the national and international people coming to you and uh, is there a thought to go beyond Oregon with this organization or are you staying Oregon specific? Yeah, it's fascinating. The, the top two things that I heard at Assemblage were this feels like this event has been happening for 10 years. Mm -hmm. This does not feel like a first time event, which was huge praise. Mm -hmm. And then the second was, are you planning on taking this on the road? And I was like, that sounds really hard. <laughs> <laughs> like, I live in this community. I, I live and breathe uh, this, this business. And uh, it was still hard mm -hmm. to do it in my own backyard. Um, so while I'm incredibly flattered, we all are incredibly flattered by that. Uh, for now, our, our focus is on Oregon. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's talk about the industry a bit. Um, I'm curious, especially through your lens. So after talking about all this, I'm talking about assemblage and the, the reasons for it and the, the mm -hmm. needs. Um, how has the Oregon wine industry changed since you've been a part of mm. it? Uh, what does it look like when you came into it? What does it look like now? Yeah. Uh, what has changed? Yeah. I mean, I think the sheer, the sheer number of... Um, just the, the growth of the publicity that's been applied to folks that don't represent traditional standards in winemaking. We're really proud to see um, to see so many journalists and to see so many writers celebrating, you know, uh, folks like Elena at Alumbra and um, you know the amazing women winemakers that are such a fabric of this community, like Anna Matzinger and Kate Payne Brown and Wynne Peterson Nedry and um, you know, Brand Day at Day Wines, who's doing incredibly interesting things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think the coverage of, of women and diverse folks in wine is better than it was previously. Um, I also think the content that we're providing as Awesome Bosch is really timely and that there's a national conversation going on around diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. that I have, I certainly didn't see it happening 10 years ago when I was just getting started. Um, so I'm grateful that, you know, our country as a whole is considering these issues and considering um, what it means to be an ally to those communities, what it means to have representation of those folks on TV. I mean, when I was growing up, I was just talking to my mom about this last night at dinner, actually. Um, my mom said, do you think that you would have come out when you did if you hadn't done student government? Because when I was in student government, we talked a lot about representation. And I was like, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I don't know when I would have come out if I hadn't had that particular opportunity. But I do know that being in spaces that are willing to have those conversations makes you so much braver in living your life authentically. And um, I sense it's it's I, there's nothing I can point to to prove, but I sense a shift in in the Oregon industry in a willingness to have those conversations mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't when I started. Mm -hmm. 
um, that I'm really encouraged by. I also have to say in the last like week, um, I noticed on Instagram that the hashtag diversify wine has zero posts ever. And that's my new project. Hashtag diversify wine. Diversify wine. And um, we've been profiling online in the last couple of days, we've been profiling local Oregon wineries that have had people of color in their marketing that have not called out that it's a person of color in that campaign, but have literally just put them enjoying wine and just like you would any other, you know, any other visitor. Um, and we're starting to ask people to send us their work that features diverse communities. And maybe there's something there you know maybe this is a campaign for us that we start gathering you know images and campaigns of people who have really consciously and responsibly represented diversity in their marketing work when it comes to wine and being a place where people can submit and send that stuff and maybe it's an award maybe it's a you know a, a scholarship opportunity maybe who knows what it is but that's kind of what's knocking around in my brain right now is Hashtag diversify wine. And all the things you could do with that. And all the things we could do with that. <laughs> totally. It feels feels like there's an it's a nugget of something that could could make a difference globally mm-hmm. because it's literally I mean in English, diversify wine, but it's uh, there are zero posts on Instagram with that hashtag, which just boggles my mind mm-hmm. that that hasn't been done before. What about as you look ahead? What about what is Oregon wine going to look like in a, in a decade? Like what what mm. what are the changes you're hoping for? What mm-hmm. are, what do you fear? What do you see it looking like uh, in say 2030? Yeah, 2030. Uh, I think I think Oregon is uniquely positioned in in certainly the national wine conversation, but even in the global wine conversation. Think about think about how unique Oregon is, how trailblazing Oregon wine industry was, period. I mean, you, we, you, the, uh, the Oregon Wine Archives, you know, you have these incredible stories from, you know, the folks at Irie and the folks from Elk Cove and Ponzi and, and Erath that believed against all odds that this place could be what it is today and, and flew, you know, flew against the the flock of believing that you had to have certain geological certain um, weather climactic patterns in order to be a successful wine region to grow you know to to grow um, certain any variety of wine mm-hmm. and those people who said yeah and it's it's perfect here and so we're gonna do it even though they couldn't get funding and they you know people thought they were crazy and that they were just like gonna totally you know lose their livelihoods and dedicate all their time and energy to this thing that was just doomed to be a failure and look what has happened and so I think Oregon is uniquely positioned as sort of a renegade in the wine industry in general Um, we also pride ourselves on being especially the closer you get to Portland on being sort of a of a progressive ideology and I think it's time for us to check back in on those original values that we set forth with in the early days we talked to you know pioneers talked a lot about how they could not have done what they did without each other mm-hmm. collaboration was a huge piece in you know all boats rise with the tide I also noticed um, there was a there was a strict code that they held themselves to of quality from the beginning, mm-hmm. of um, you know even getting to the point where that you know you're petitioning the legislature to increase 
the stringency of labeling laws in Oregon saying, I know in California you can put Pinot Noir on a label and 75% of the fruit can be something else. In Oregon, we want it to be 95%. We want typicity of what Pinot Noir from Oregon means, and we don't want to dilute that figuratively or literally. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, there's this incredible drive here for doing the right thing and for doing it together and for lifting each other up um, not with a not with a handout, you know, but with a leg up. Mm-hmm. And I think we are just poised to talk about these things. We should be leading the national conversation and diversity and inclusion because it's who we are and it's who we've always been. And um, I just know that I really believe that 10 years from now, um, we will, my hope is that we will have far more winemakers of color. We will have gender equity in cellars where there's just as many women working in the cellar as there are men. Um, and that they're rolling barrels and that they're doing the you know the physical work of production um, just as much so as their male counterparts because they're they can do it, they should do it, they're brave enough to do it, and the men in the in the cellars who maybe knew how to do it taught them how and didn't do it for them. Um, and and I really I, I think that I think that we have an opportunity here to lead the nation and to lead the world in these kinds of conversations. Like I said, there are a lot of women and diversity in wine events around the nation, but they do move. They move from place to place, and I've noticed that. And I wonder what that does to. Um, it's easy to attend an event and then to go home, but if you go home and you're the only one in your region that went to that event. How much change can you make as one person? A significant amount, but not as much as if your entire industry, if your entire region went to that event. And they're all thinking about those conversations. And everywhere you go that night, like I heard from Austin Bosch, the Sullen McMinnville was full, you know, um, Capo, Pizza Capo downtown was full, and it was all women, t- like with the just the din of the conversation, like booming in these spaces mm-hmm. because everyone couldn't wait to hear what everyone else thought about what happened that day. Mm-hmm. And if you can't go anywhere without by, and, and avoid these conversations, mm-hmm. That to me makes change. That to me makes progress. If everyone's talking about it and you're not the only one trying to say, oh my gosh, do you have five minutes? Let me tell you about this thing I just experienced because we all need to know this. Um, and so maybe that's an argument for staying close to home with this event and just continuing to like beat that drum of Oregon leads the nation on this and, um, and continuing to do that. So you're probably hearing a lot of uncertainty and like what's next or what I think the next 10 years will look like, but I certainly hope that Assemblage can be, um, can be a driver for people really not shying away from those conversations and having them over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and really going to that place that's sometimes uncomfortable and finding comfort in it. What about for yourself as you look ahead? Obviously, you've you've done a lot already. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've had a lot of you've had a lot of a lot of changes already, a lot of life changes already, and job changes. Tell me what you see as you look ahead for yourself at that same time span. I've learned a lot about myself in this process. I've learned that um, I've learned that I I have a new idea like every day, you know, maybe sometimes twice a day about not just what Awesome Blodge can do and where this can go, but about a lot of different things. And so I'm, tr- 
trying to, you know, in my non-assemblage capacity, I've been doing sales and marketing on a consulting basis mm -hmm. for a couple different brands, for some tourism agencies, and getting to kind of stretch my storytelling muscles and my, I'm still in the sales and marketing game, um, which I'm so happy to be doing because I don't want to leave all of those hard skills behind that I learned how to do so well um, since my beginning at Rex Hill, I really love that stuff. And so figuring out what moves people to buy and how to tell this story in such a way that you really feel like you know the winemaker, you really feel like you know the vineyard manager, um, still totally lights my fire. And so I'm not looking to get away from being an active part of the industry and getting to a place where I'm just critiquing it all the time uh, as an outsider. Mm -hmm. So a balance is needed for me, but I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if five years from now, you know, someone else was at the helm of this and that I passed this on mm -hmm. to the next generation of women and diverse people who want to spark these conversations. Um, and I also wouldn't be surprised if five or 10 years from now, I'm still doing this. There's, there's really no clear path from here. I think I'm still in that place of do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally stealing that from Frozen 2, by the way. <laughs> There's a song in Frozen 2 called, I don't know what it's called, but the crux of it is do the next right thing. And I watched it and I just was so moved. And I was like, that's what I've been doing. And like, okay, thank you for the reinforcement, Frozen. I love it. Um, but I really think those are words to live by. And so no immediate plans to like do like I did a year and a half ago and quit my job and jump into the void. I'm pretty comfortable where I am and I want to see how far this awesome Blush road can take us because it is, it is moving me deeply on a daily basis and challenging even my, you know, my held beliefs and my personal biases. And I feel like I'm personally benefiting and growing so much from just being with these women and being a part of this community. And um, I can't foresee letting it go anytime soon. It's just, it's too good, it's too great. But I see it getting a lot bigger and changing a lot. And. Um, who knows? Maybe one day we will do Awesome Blush in New York City. <laughs> Check back with me in five years and we'll see. That's right. <laughs> you, can another, you can have another first time. That would yeah. be great. That'd be yeah, great we could everyone. do another year one. Great. Year one. Okay, yeah. Now I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious before I, before we wrap, I have a couple wrap up questions for you, but I'm curious about something that's kind of, that I've kind of thought about through the interview is you, you, these issues are not specific to wine, obviously. You talk right. about them in a, in a larger sense. I'm curious with with the wine industry, with what you're working on here. What are, what? How does it compare to the other industries? How mm -hmm. does it? What is different about wine to you that is something why you're focusing so hard, so much on that industry versus yeah. a larger? Such a great question, and I did hear from quite a few people who came to the event that really it could, it, it had content that serves anyone in business who's interested in social change. And I think that's true. And I don't think that that's something that we need to shy away from, that this could be an event that that had its origins in the wine industry, but that welcomes people from restaurants and hotels and um, you know even, even further outside the hospitality space because anyone that's interested in making your work work better for you, like will find something at Austin Bosch, at, at least one thing, if not many things to take away from it. Um, but I think the reason why I feel like the wine industry particularly needs this is that very similarly, I think there's, wine has a lot of comparisons to restaurant, entertainment, 
engineering, these other these other industries that have recently had some pretty serious reckonings mm -hmm. about diversity, inclusion, particularly about like the Me Too movement and sexual harassment and, and assault. Um, there are a few key comparisons to be made. There's um, there's kind of a fractured like small business mentality where like the culture changes from business to business. There's also kind of a celebrifying of people mm -hmm. in the business. There's um, you know winemakers kind of sometimes you know there's like the rock star winemakers that ha just have that swagger and have a huge Instagram following and who throw their weight around a little bit because they know they can, and people who just are like, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so, yes, we have your we have your preferred table ready for you in the back, you know? And and I'm not trashing any of that stuff, I'm just saying it happens. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's sometimes a lot of attention um, given to the few at the top mm -hmm. and not as much attention given to those who make the industry run on a daily basis in a different capacity. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, non-traditional working hours, non-traditional envi working environments. So people are selling wine in bars and hotels and restaurants at night sometimes. You're going on ride-alongs with your um, with your distributor in another city that you're unfamiliar with and you're by yourself in their personal car driving around with them all day. There's a lot of like room for things to happen mm -hmm. and not a lot of preemptive training, discussion, mm -hmm. um, support for what could happen, you know? And I don't think it's like disaster um, searching to talk about those things, even if they haven't happened or you don't know that they've happened at your company, mm -hmm. to say, you're gonna be in a person's car you've never met for eight hours in a city you don't know, and, and you know, you're gonna be staying in a hotel room by yourself and they're gonna be picking you up and dropping you off there every day. Like, what's your comfortability with that? Is there anything we can do to make that more safe for you? Um, you know, those kinds of, so those kinds of opportunities are ripe for, um, plus you add alcohol into any of those scenarios and doesn't tend to get better, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think that's why this is particularly needed in wine, mm -hmm. is that it really does share, um, you're not sitting in a cubicle at your desk every day in the same place every day for eight hours every day with your supervisor two desks away. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of getting out in the community that makes our jobs so fun and so interesting and so dynamic, but that also make them risky. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think wine is uniquely suited to absorb and think about this content. So I'm assuming you get this. You've gotten this question a lot. I'm assuming, uh, or, or the, the specifics of it. Uh, but if someone were coming to you, uh, wanted to, want to join the Oregon wine mm -hmm. industry today, mm -hmm. would you have words of wisdom for them? And in, specifically in this case, also, would you have different words of wisdom if they were a woman or a person of color, typical, mm. typical minority? Yeah. Um, I think my advice uh, for anyone entering entering the Oregon wine industry is a do it. Yes, it's an incredible place with so much to offer you, so much richness. Um, we often talk about how, you know, sometimes the wine industry has a reputation for not paying very well or not making, you know, it's it's not, you're not gonna make a million dollars in the wine industry, but it's gonna give you a life that is rich and interesting and inspiring and um, fun and cool, you know? Like, what we get to do every day is so cool. And it's never lost on me. Um, and so 
and and I want to say too that while Austin Bosch has a lot to say about how we can be better, that we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't put all this effort in. We wouldn't we wouldn't have killed ourselves for the last year and a half to have this event if it wasn't worth fighting for. And um, so I would absolutely say yes, do it. Uh, I would also advise mentorship. Mentorship. Mentorship is so huge. It is. It is very much more. I have experienced the wine industry to be very much more about who you know and what relationships you have than necessarily what technical experience you have, what degree you got. Um, the number of times people ask me whether or not I got a bachelor's or a master's or what my grades were in college is like nothing. No, of course not. It's about getting out there. It's about making making connections. Um, it's about offering yourself up. For, volunteer for everything you possibly can. Volunteer for Oregon Pinot Camp. Volunteer for IPNC. Volunteer for the Oregon Wine Symposium. Volunteer for Austin Lodge. <laughs> and um, just be seen. Ask people how they got into the business. People love talking about themselves. Just get to know people as fast as you can. Um, and you know, hopefully you do it because it's fun and interesting to you, but even if it's strategic, great. Um, I also suggest Finding, if you can find sort of two mentorship roles in your life, one person who's really a lot like you and one person who's really not a lot like you um, and who brings a very different perspective, you want to make sure your value systems align. I'm not saying go find, you know, the, the equivalent of the devil's advocate in your life because that just leads to frustration. But find someone who shares your values, but who does something totally different in the wine industry or who has a totally different perspective um, just to keep that discourse rolling. And so it's not just an echo chamber. Um, I find a lot that like salespeople stick together and production people stick together and vineyard folks stick together. And there can be sort of these like um, little micro communities in between because people's interests are the same and that makes perfect sense. You're going to gravitate towards someone who has a similar experience to you. But um, if you can find two people who will mentor you, who have you know, about five, ten years experience on you in the industry, someone who reminds you a lot of yourself and then someone who really doesn't, you'll be all the better for it. Um, yeah, and don't worry so much about what you don't know. There is so much to know about the wine industry. There's so much to know about wine. It's one of the reasons why we love what we do is that I'll be on my deathbed in my 80s, 90s, you know, hopefully, and we'll still not know everything about wine. And it's one of the things that just continues to fuel my passion for this is that there's so much to know. And um, it's actually really refreshing when somebody says, I don't know what pijage is. Can you tell me what that is after I said pijage 20 minutes ago? And then I just kept going. And then they're like, wait, can we? I find it so interesting when some, you know, I've gone on, I've said, I, I will never forget, I had a, a brand new part-time, um, part-time associate at a winery that I work for that I was training. And I was probably like 10 minutes into this long diatribe like I do about, you know, why I love these wines, da 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 da. And I was talking about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and probably like 10 minutes in, he was like, okay, so is Chardonnay a, a red wine or a white wine? And I was like, oh, I have really gone 
way farther way than far. you needed to know. <laughs> and instead of being like, you can't work here, you don't know that Chardonnay is a white wine, my approach was, wow, thank you so much for being brave enough to ask that question. Let's go back. Here's here's how, so, and I hope that people who are in positions of power, in position, positions of mentorship, positions of leadership, um, approach questions with that excitement because it's what means that learning happens faster they get closer to where you need them to be and want them to be if they feel empowered to ask questions and um, and so those are the things that excite me about seeing the next generation of people coming up as they're um, when they're brave enough to say wow I really don't know what that is or I can't smell anything in this wine it smells like grapes <laughs> This is super grapey, you know? And just be yourself. Like, don't, you don't have to know more than you know. You don't have to be a master level some, you know, taster to do well here. If you can tell stories, if you can connect, if you can talk passionately about what you love and you smell in this wine and then be excited when someone says they smell something different. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> I don't know if my advice would be different for people of color. I think it, that's a question that um, should be asked of a person of color because I don't want to speak on what helps that community um, or those communities when I don't have a lived experience that can speak to that. But um, I do know that the challenges are harder, that the climb is steeper. And um, I would imagine that mentorship becomes incredibly important in, in a community that's threatened. And I would be happy to connect you with some amazing women in our organization who are people of color, who are women of color, um, who I think would answer that question well. Good. That's all the questions I have. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't talk about, you wanted to talk about? Um, well, how much time do you have? I'm kidding. No, I'm... Until the sun, until the sun goes down. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity. I mean, what an honor to have my voice be a part of, you know, the fabric of what's happened in Oregon Wine via the archives. And I think the work that you do is incredibly important and valued. And uh, I'm so excited to be a part of it. Thank you. We're excited to have you Thank as part you. of it. Thank uh, you. We'll go ahead and thank you for all your stories. Thank you for sharing your time with us today and sharing the mission and assemblage as it's on its outset here. Yeah. Uh, and we'll look forward to many more good things from you. Thank you so much. We'll Thanks. let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.